Hey everyone, my name is Kaylin and I'm one of the student assistants with the Office for Multicultural Learning. I'm going to be your podcast host for today on our new OML podcast, Word on the Street. This is episode two on athlete activism. If you haven't yet already checked out episode one, definitely go do that. It's on language and identity. For the folks who are repeat listeners, it's just me today. Prissa, unfortunately, is not here with me to be talking about athlete activism. So just a quick overview of what we're going to be really diving into for this podcast episode. Athlete activism we're here, we're using here to refer to professional athletes who use our platform to highlight and start discussions on various social issues or injustices that they care about or maybe align themselves with to some extent. I know that most of y'all, the minute I said athlete and activism in the same sentence, probably thought of Colin Kaepernick and the protests that he staged during the national anthem before football games. But his activism is really just a part of a rich legacy of athlete activism that dates actually all the way back to the 1940s. So it's definitely a long history. And in this podcast, podcast episode, we'll be discussing that history and legacy and also maybe pose some questions about where we go from here. What do we do with this information? How does it maybe change the way we view uh, sports and games and sports leagues? And how does that change maybe how we shop or um, even consume? This podcast is also a little bit of a recap of the discussion that OMA hosted along with the Student Athlete Advisory Committee on February 4th, where we talked about sports, activism, and race to kick off our Black History Month programming. Though there are many different athletes, I'm sure, that have participated in some sort of athlete activism, there is a very rich history and legacy of Black athlete activism that we would really like to highlight here uh, and really give them credit and respect that they might not have gotten in their time, uh, or even still today. This is also a podcast idea that actually spawned from my internship experience over the summer. I was able to intern with the National Men's Soccer League as a partnership sales intern, which meant I was actually able to see kind of the inner workings of one of the professional sports leagues in the U.S. I was part of the team that really spoke to potential league sponsors to try and get them to sign deals with the league to be sponsors in the coming seasons. So that meant, you know, talking to companies like a Budweiser or Nike or Ikea that are already sponsoring other leagues uh, and then trying to get them to add another league into their portfolio. And to me, the question that kind of loomed in the back of my head throughout the summer was how do corporates partners, potential corporate partners, react to athlete activism that might be happening within the league. Do they see it as a deterrent or a drawing point? Do outspoken athletes push them away from sponsoring the league or do they pull them in? What sort of impact does that have in terms of thinking from a corporate partner standpoint? Do they take that into consideration when they're looking at potentially tying their brand to another sports league and another brand and creating that partnership from there as well? So I think that was something that was very interesting to me. So really looking at specifically athlete activism and the history of it, again, like I said before, there's a very long and strong legacy of Black, specifically athlete activism. And though I'm sure, again, Colin Kaepernick gets probably in the minds of everyone right now. Uh, 
he really is just one part of a long chain in history of athletes who have used their platform uh, in the same way that he did. So Howard Bryant, who is a sports journalist, identifies really the beginning of this legacy of athlete activism with Paul Robeson in his book, The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. I think though many people today, if you know who Paul Robeson is, probably think of him as a musician. He was actually an NFL player. He played two seasons, a whopping two seasons in the 1921 and 1922 seasons, where he played for the Akron, Akron, sorry, Akron Pros and the Milwaukee Batters, respectively. While, side note, also getting his law degree from Columbia. So, I mean, I guess he can flex there. However, in 1949, he is a, he actually spoke at the Paris Peace Conference. And this is, you know, after he finished playing, but he's still a former NFL player here. He still was a black athlete. He spoke at the Paris Peace Conference where he condemned American racism and really called out the treatment of African-Americans by the United States. Additionally, on that international stage, he also kind of slipped in there that he felt that he was treated better while he was, you know, visiting the Soviet Union. And keep in mind that this was happening in 1949. So this was at the beginning of really the Cold War McCarthyism era. And so, and you see the Soviet Union as a communist, you know, rival to the U.S., the American government was not appreciative of the fact that Robeson, as a prominent African-American on an international stage, not only critiqued the U.S. for uh, the racism that was going on there on the part of both the state and, you know, this, you know, overall citizens um, against African-Americans, but he also kind of praised the Soviet Union in the same breath. So keeping in mind that at this point in the burgeoning Cold War era, the Robeson essentially drew this comparison between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in which he was saying that, you know, as an African-American, I get better treatment in the Soviet Union, which is, at the, which is was at that time a communist country. And America is not... American racism is really something to condemn. And as, again, we were in the beginning stages of the Cold War, the American government did not appreciate this comparison that he drew at this, at this international stage. As a result of this, Jackie Robinson, interestingly, also a black athlete, and many of you know him as you know the first black baseball player in, the, in Major League Baseball, he was actually called into Congress to testify and denounce Paul Robeson's comments, which he did. And then as a result of this, Robeson not only lost his passport, he was harassed by the government, uh, as well as experienced financial hardships. So there was this pushback financially um, on Robeson for his comments that he made at this Paris Peace Conference. Um, interestingly enough, the testimony of another black athlete was part of this whole process to getting Robeson really punished for essentially speaking the truth at these at this peace conference as well. 
jumping forward a little bit in time, uh, you also had another prominent athlete activist in Muhammad Ali. In 1967, during the Vietnam War, he refused the draft on grounds of his religious beliefs. In interviews, he was very explicit in saying that he would not participate in what he called, uh, in his words, quote, a white man's war, unquote. He also said he would not participate in a war where he would be shooting at people who didn't do any injustice to him like white Americans did to African Americans. In fact, I think there were a lot of quotes of him saying that his enemy wasn't, weren't the Vietnamese people in Vietnam or like the Viet Cong or uh, the communist, the Vietnamese communist regime. He said that his enemy was the white man um, and his enemy was, you know, white Americans. He did, he spoke a lot about this history of lynching, of being called racial slurs, of, you know, rape against African-American women as well. And he said, why would he be fighting for a country that really turned a blind eye to the injustices that were not only just turned a blind eye in some cases, upheld and was complicit in violent racism against African-Americans. And so, I mean, he had also, he also had pushback to his comments and his decision to refuse the draft. Because of his decision, he was stripped of his titles. He was denied a license to fight in the U.S., but then also denied a visa to go overseas, so he couldn't fight abroad either. And really, because of this, experienced financial hardships. He wasn't able to win money um, by fighting in as a boxer. I mean, that's what his profession was. That was, that was what he was doing as an athlete. And he was denied a license to do so in the U.S. and effectively blocked from his livelihood, <laughs> doing his livelihood, and then blocked from, a, from being able to go abroad to do his livelihood. Uh, and so he experienced financial hardships that I don't think people are very aware about. He was making money doing speaking engagements at colleges, but was really at that time living from check to check, really using the money that he got from various speaking engagements to sustain himself until he could find another speaking engagement. And then in the very next year, so late 60s, a lot of things were happening. Um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos... I think people might not know their names, but people will recognize the image. But they were the two track and field athletes who did the black power salute on the Olympic podium in Mexico City in 1968 after they won gold and bronze respectively in the 200 meters sprint. Uh, and so people, I think a lot of people have seen that image of both of them standing on the podium with their arms raised with the black gloves on their hands and doing that black power salute and putting their fists in the air. People, I mean, this is also a sign up. People tend to forget too that there was that, the Australian man who came in silver was also wearing a human rights badge as well and trying to do some, his own form of protest. But I think the image of Tommy Smith and John Carlos standing on the podium in the gold and bronze positions with their Fists in the air and the Black Power salute was a very jarring image to a lot of people. 
whether it was a good jarring or a bad jarring. Um, I think also too, they were very intentional with what they wore. And I think a lot of people overlook that because they just will be taking in that image of these two men in the black power salute on the Olympic podium, which like Paul Robeson was a hugely international stage. Everyone was watching the Olympics. The Olympics are the time every four years where people will tune in from around the world and see athletes from around the world competing. And so you couldn't really get a bigger stage than this. But again, they were intentional with what they wore outside of just doing the black power salute. They again wore a black glove for black power. They, do, they wore no shoes to represent poverty. Uh, Smith had a black scarf on where he said that represented and paid homage to the lynchings of black people throughout American history. It, so it, again, was mu a much more deeper symbolism here than just a black power suit. And I think that throughout time, as we've remembered them, people remember them for the black power salute but not realize that everything else and what they were presenting was so intentional and i think sometimes that narrative gets flattened a little bit but now you know they had a huge amount of symbolism from literally head to toe there in what they wore um but similar to ali and robeson they also faced financial hardships after their actions they received death threats as well they didn't represent the U.S. for track and field again. Uh, I think that's a testament to potentially the repercussions, considering also that this is for the U.S. national team. I think that's something, food for thought for y'all to think about. In addition, in 1968, again, 68, big year, um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, famous basketball player, a lot of people know him as a basketball player, as well, but he boycotted the, that, those Olympics. He was able to go. He A lot of people thought he would go because he was an, an amazing athlete at that point and already well-known, but he decided to boycott the 1968 Olympics and instead use that summer to actually do community work with youth in his home of uh, New York City. And he was also, like Ali, vocally opposed the Vietnam War. So. I think people also forget, tend to forget that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was also involved in, you know, protests that year, Olympic year, by not going to the Olympics. Um, I think sometimes people will forget that as well, considering that in 68 too, you also had the Black Power Salute on the Olympic podium. And then doing another big jump in time, we're just going to do a brief, you know, history of the highlights and the recent memory of like NBA activism as well, kind of jumping off of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But I mean, you had the Phoenix Suns, for example, wearing, you know, Los Suns warm-up shirts to protest the Arizona State Bill 1070, which allowed for law enforcement to just stop people they had a suspicion of being undocumented, asking them for their documentation um, in 2012. Players wore hoodies following the Trayvon Martin shooting and killing. A lot of people might remember the I Can't Breathe warm-up shirts that were worn after the death of Eric Garner. Uh, some fans might remember in 2016, notable NBA players spoke at the 2016 ESPYs about gun violence, racial injustice, and police brutality. 
Just recently, last summer, LeBron James opened up his I Promise School to really promote education uh, for underserved youth and ensuring that they get a quality education moving forward. And so, again, the NBA, there's a lot of different things going on. Those are just various highlights throughout time. I think also a big one to mention was uh, the move on the NBA as a league to move an all-star, a, a planned all-star game out of Charlotte because of the, you know, the quote-unquote bathroom bill um, that was going on at that time. A lot of different things were have been going on with the NBA in terms of both individual action uh, on the part of individual players as well as, you know, whole teams or leagues. Uh, this might just be coming through here. I totally confess I am a Golden State Warriors fan, so uh, I mean, a lot of people might know, you know, Steve Kerr for being outspoken about certain things. He's also a big, he's outspoken on the issue of gun violence himself with his own personal ties to that as well. Um, other coaches, you know, Greg Pop- Popovich has also been, you know, gotten stuff from like sound bites about his own uh, opinions about certain things as well. But again, the NBA, there's a whole host of examples of athlete activism within that league as well. And related to, kind of related to the NBA, the WNBA also, we take this time now to shout out WNBA because they've been doing a lot of great activist work as well and they don't necessarily get the respect nor the credit that they deserve for you know taking a lot of important stances on the part of the players as well as some you know whole teams as well for instance they wore black lives matter all black warm-ups for support of that cause um actually players and teams that wore those were initially fined by the league for violating warm-up or uniform code or something like that um i mean essentially they were they were fined for wearing those warm-ups uh they then protested that decision by deciding not to as a collective to not answer any basketball related questions after games and their press conferences uh to really and instead spend that time highlighting various issues that were uh that they would like to like to address um but again not answering any basketball related questions eventually their fine got overturned by the league but i mean there was still that initial financial punishment placed upon the players for speaking up and speaking out in addition whole teams you know skipped the national anthem before games as well um just another i think a sign of support also to colin kaepernick uh who we're going to get to now when we talk about wrapping up really this highlight of this history of athlete activism talking a little bit about the nfl so i mean coming on first like coming on the heels of i think the killing of Michael Brown, you know, this is as an example of activism within the NFL, maybe not surrounding specifically Colin Kaepernick, but coming on the heels of the killing of Michael Brown, five St. Louis Rams players actually ran out into the field before a game with their hands up, an image that was associated at the time with hands up, don't shoot, 
they also got a lot of flack for that from, you know, various people in different news agencies or like people who had opinions and were talking about that. And then, you know, certain viewers were making their feelings known on social media, et cetera, et cetera. But really showing that visual support for the cause um, in particular with this of Black Lives Matter. And then getting to Colin Kaepernick. So sure, a lot of people know by now what Colin Kaepernick did, but he decided to not stand for the national anthem that was being played before football games as a form of protest against racial injustice in the United States um, and really making sure that he was putting a highlight on that. I think, I believe he said, this is to paraphrase his quote, but he would not stand for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. And so he really was using, um, similar to like Tommy Smith and John Carlos was using his body during the national anthem to protest systems of oppression. And I think a lot of people remember the pushback he got saying that people were saying, oh, he's anti-veteran, things like that. People completely disregarding essentially his entire message in his protest and, you know, highlighting and, you know, highlighting the fact that he actually changed the protest because he consulted with an army veteran who was playing at the time um, where he said, hey, I don't want I want to make sure that I'm being respectful to our veterans as well. How do you think I should, what do you think is a more respectful way? And he said, you know, maybe you should kneel. That would be a sign, more more of a sign of respect in his opinion as an army veteran. However, I think that whole narrative and story was lost because he's still being painted as this person who is anti-veteran as well in terms of his protest and the fact that he decided to, kneel and not stand for the national anthem during the game but you know Colin Kaepernick I think is a very contemporary example of athlete activism and it's still an ongoing issue because he like many other athletes who decided to speak up and speak out has been punished essentially financially he has not been signed to a team in I think almost three years now Um, But it's been multiple years that he's spent essentially unemployed. He's an NFL, he was an NFL quarterback and he's not anymore after his protest. He's still stayed unsigned and there's, I think, a huge list of names of people who have been signed as NFL quarterbacks before him. And many of those folks that are, are people that others would argue are not necessarily better than him and yet here he is essentially being blacklisted by the league for taking a stance on an issue and speaking up and speaking out about it and here he is being punished and blacklisted for that and essentially held without a job um, for multiple years and at the same time I think people get lost in this get lost in this conversation that Colin Kaepernick is not just standing or kneeling, protesting during the national anthem. He's been doing a lot of community work as well, pledging a lot of large sums of money to 
various community organizations. And yet here he is being punished for that and has been essentially without a job for quite a while. And so that kind of wraps up our, you know, summary of the history of athlete activism. I just want to make a note here. This is by far not an extensive list. It's just the highlights. If we were to do a fully exhaustive list, you'd probably have to listen to me talk for a very long time. And I'm not sure that some of y'all would want to do that because I don't know if you like the sound of my voice for that long. Um, <clears throat> but I think if you want to check out more about this topic specifically, definitely go check out Howard Bryant's book, The Heritage Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism, also the internet. We have so much information at our disposal. There's a lot of information out there now as well um, in terms of both like current movements that are going on that are players that players are supporting as well as you know more historical uh, pieces that talked about the history of like athlete activism. Definitely go check out on YouTube. There are a lot of great clips on both Muhammad Ali and Tommy Smith and John Carlos and their work as well. Um, it's definitely worth checking out. There are great interviews that Muhammad Ali did about his decision to not to refuse the draft for the Vietnam War. There's a great there are great you know clips from documentaries about Tommy Smith and John Carlos as well that you should definitely go check out. Definitely. Hopefully this is kind this podcast has been kind of an inspiration point for you to go do some more research on your own because uh, it's definitely an issue in a history that's still connected to the present and it's fascinating uh, as well. And speaking of you know the information that is out there, I think it's also important to note that with the advent of social media, athlete activism has really changed. So if you think back to like those historical figures like Ali or, Abdul-Jabbar, Robeson, social media was not a thing at that point in time. And so now, you know, social media has been able to create spaces and community and organizing spaces online that has helped people come together through certain issues and has helped, you know, athletes expand their, you know, platform and their reach to not just you know, staging a protest, maybe on a national, nationally televised game, but, you know, they can go then online and say, like, here's, you know, what I've been doing as well, and, like, getting people connected with various organizations and things like that. So I think social media has definitely played a huge role in terms of, like, this kind of burgeoning, you know, and more, you know, presence uh, a bigger presence of like athlete activism because if you think about it before social media and thinking about back to the days of like Abdul Jabbar or Tommy Smith and John Carlos you know they had to be very intentional about when they stage things because you have to be able to figure out when it's going to be viewed by the most people because it's not going to be like today when you can just tweet something and lives on there forever and you can just easily retweet it when you want to to get you know more people aware if you think about it they chose like major major spaces to 
really have their athlete activism show through. I mean, if you think about it, what how how much of a bigger stage can you get than standing on the Olympic podium as an Olympic gold medalist? So I think social media is definitely part of this conversation as well and something that we need to think about in terms of moving forward when we're looking at athlete activism. Additionally, as we're talking about moving forward, I think something to really marinate on and maybe think about is why we don't necessarily hear much about the history of athlete activism, particularly the activism of Black athletes. You know, is it because athlete activism is still in its infancy stages? Is it because there's history that's being erased or hidden from us by certain groups or communities? Is it both? Is it because people are just uncomfortable with, you know, athletes speaking out about things like this or not fulfilling the role that we've put on them as like purely just athletes or sportsmen um, or sports people? Is it all of those things? Is it a combination of things? It's just something to think about as we move forward. And then speaking of particularly in identity, does it is their identity impacting that? You know, many of these athletes who spoke up and spoke out were black athletes. You know, why do you think that is? How does their identity um, at that point then inform why and how they use their platform? And when we're speaking about identity too and looking at athlete activism, I think it's also important to question and interrogate the tension or the dynamic that arises when we look at the fact that many of these leagues have high percentages of black athletes yet zero or close to zero black coaches or team owners. Um, You know, what sort of dynamic does that create in terms of you're seeing these black athletes who are being you know, drafted to teams, picked for teams, or traded between teams by organizations that are owned by often white men, old white men often. Um, What kind of dynamic does that create and what kind of tension does that create in terms of how we're viewing this when we're seeing Black athletes, you know, being punished for speaking out and quote unquote by some like and how some people might say, you know, they're not staying in their lane by, you know, speaking on issues like this. And so what does that what sort of tensions arise because of that? Again, food for thought, just something to think about as we move forward. Um and then kind of speaking to specifically the repercussions potentially of athletes who speak out, you know, many of them who speak who like use their platform in this way were punished financially for their actions. Uh, just circling back to Muhammad Ali's story, he was really living check to check when he was going between speaking engagements when he couldn't fight anymore um, in the U.S. or even just go abroad to make some money. And so, a huge part of this is this financial pushback and like punishment that a lot of them will have to face if they speak out on certain issues. So then how can, you know, we as consumers moving forward and spectators of sports better support athletes who take the risk of speaking up and speaking out and use their platforms to speak on social issues? 
How can we as consumers speak with our dollars or our viewerships, for instance, to ensure that players are not being punished for speaking out? How do we make sure that we're helping support and protect them as well from um, potentially being barred of their performing their livelihood at the end of the day? Thinking back to Colin Kaepernick, he's still not on an NFL team. He's His job for so long is was um, as an NFL quarterback and now he's essentially been barred by doing that because he's being blacklisted by the league and so how can we make sure as consumers are we're being intentional with where we put our support and making sure that you know athletes are being supported by us and uh, not being punished for really speaking up on issues Again, all food for thought, just something to think about as we move forward from this podcast and hopefully as you all move forward in terms of being spectators of sport. Uh, I mean, the Super Bowl just happened earlier this month. Um, And so, I mean, the NFL season's over for now, but, you know, moving forward into next year, does that change how you might watch the NFL or maybe support certain teams or um, organizations and things like that you know we're coming towards the second half of the NBA season Um, does that change how you have your viewership habits again food for thought so thank you for listening for our new listeners out there this has been word on the street the OMO podcast Before we sign off, though, I would just like to shout out the Office for Multicultural Learning. Uh, Give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram, as well as be on the lookout for emails from our fabulous director, Dr. Joanna Thompson, for updates on events and happenings with the office. For our Black History Month programming, we'll be hosting a difficult dialogue on Thursday, February 14th on the 400th anniversary of slavery in the United States. Also, be on the lookout for more podcast episodes as well. If you'd like to, go ahead and give us a little follow on SoundCloud. Um, And from OML, this is Caitlin. Thanks for listening.